Welcome back to Supreme Myths. My guest today is my close friend and law professor extraordinaire, Corinna Barrett Lane, who is the S.D. Roberts and Sandra Moore, it's a cool name, professor of law at the University of Richmond. Um, Corinna went to William & Mary and then UVA. She clerked for the Tenth Circuit. She worked uh, as a assistant Commonwealth attorney in Virginia, I think if I had that right. Um, she's been teaching at Richmond since 2002. She is a member of the prestigious American Law Institute, and um, she is a wonderful person to boot. Welcome to Supreme Myths. Oh, it's such a pleasure <laughs> to be here. It's a real honor. Uh, so we're going to talk about something today that I know really very little about because of this bizarre separation we have in constitutional law between criminal procedure type issues and the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, Eighth Amendments and equal protection, due process, and everything else. Um, and uh, I don't teach any criminal law stuff. So we are going to learn about the death penalty, um, which is your expertise. So one of your, one of your many expertises. So why don't you just start by telling us where did this, where did this interest come from in the death penalty? Because you've really done amazing Ooh, Where work. did the interest yeah. come from? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question to get us started. <laughs> so you'll appreciate this because uh, you and I are both con law scholars. Yeah. And so I was uh, uh, doing pieces. My, one of my earliest pieces was um, a piece looking at the role of the Supreme Court. And um, at UVA, I studied under Mike Klarman, you know, one of the one great- One of my heroes. <laughs> Right? There yeah. you go. Yeah. And um, I remember I, I actually took his constitutional history class in um, law school because it fit within my schedule. Then I learned to love it. But, <laughs> you know, that's sort of where that started. And um, uh, one of my early pieces was really looking at the Supreme Court. And I kind of went back to um, to civics class in high school where, you know, we learned, I learned about the Supreme Court being this counter-majoritarian hero, you know, the protector of unpopular minorities against oppressive majorities. And um, Mike Klarman's work had said, you know, that's just not true. It wasn't true in Brown. And as a young law professor, I thought, well, it's the same narrative that we have in criminal procedure. This is the story of Miranda. This is the story of Map. This is a story of Katz and Terry versus Ohio and Gideon and all the greats. And I thought, you know, I, I wonder if it's really true. And so I set out to do um, a legal history piece on those on those cases, on the giants of the criminal procedure revolution. And I did. And for non-lawyers listening, the cases you just mentioned, go through just real quickly what Mapp and Miranda and all those cases were real quick, because everybody knows about yeah. them. But just, just real quick what those cases said. Yeah. Okay. So the criminal procedure revolution yeah. is from the 1960s. Yeah. It's launched with Mapp versus Ohio. Um, it's an exclusionary rule case, but the court incorporates. Um, it's the first incorporation case. The court incorporates the Fourth Amendment uh, to the states. Um, that's 1961. In 1963, we have Gideon versus Wainwright. The court incorporates the right to counsel. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, 63 and 66, we have Miranda versus Arizona. Everybody knows of course, that that's one. famous, yeah. everybody knows that one. <laughs> in 1967, we have Katz versus United States. And in that, the court sets the cornerstone of Fourth Amendment law um, as reasonable expectation of privacy. And then in 1968, we have Terry versus Ohio with stop and frisk. Okay, thank you. So like those are the giants of the criminal procedure revolution. And um, so I set about writing about them and to show um, what my research showed that the court wasn't this counter-majoritarian hero. And on the backside of that project, I thought, well, maybe I just haven't found unpopular enough <laughs> people. Like maybe I just haven't found the unpopular minority. And so I started thinking about it and thought, yeah, capital defendants, yeah. right? Death row inmates, you want unpopular? You've got it, right? Hated for, for legitimate reasons, right? right. Despised, um, universally poor, uh, you know, disproportionately from black and brown communities. And so I thought, all right, I, I'm going to do a legal history piece on Furman versus Georgia. And um, that was the Supreme Court's big decision in 1972, actually uh, ruling that the death penalty as then applied was 
cruel and unusual. You know, a lot of people don't know that the Supreme Court actually invalidated the death penalty in 1972. We didn't have a death penalty. This country did not have a death penalty from 1972 to 1976. And it was seen, you know, the aura was, oh, you know, you've got the Burger Court and, and they, you know, protected, they saved all of these lives. They protected the most unpopular minority in the country. And so I thought, all right, that's the one. Surely the court played the role there. And so <laughs> that's the um, ticket right there. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I wrote that piece and was like, no, <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> but that, oh, that was my first death penalty piece. And the thing about the death penalty is you start writing about it, it's really hard to look away. It's like this train wreck yeah. and you, you just can't stop. And so, um, you know, that started sort of a, a lifelong, career-long um, interest in the death penalty on the merits and its interaction with Supreme Court decision-making. Could you explain what happened between 72 and 76? So in 72, the court nationally, nationally says no more death penalty. And then in 76, the court comes back and says, okay, you can start again. What, 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 what was that? What happened there? <laughs> um, is it okay to say all hell broke loose? Yes. Um, On this podcast, you can do it, say anything you want. <laughs> all right. Well, that's exactly what happened. So in 1972, in Furman v. Georgia, the Supreme Court said um, that the death penalty, which this was clearly true, uh, the death penalty was applied in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Yeah. And so the court said, you know, we, you, you could put these cases right next to each other, and there's no way that there is any logical distinction between who is getting death and who is getting life. And so the court said part of the problem was that juries just had unbridled discretion. They could do whatever they wanted. And they did. They did whatever they wanted. So the Supreme Court I'm struck sorry, down I, I, the death which I assume meant most of the time putting black people to death and not putting white people to death. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, that uh, that ran through uh, three of the five justices' opinions in Furman. So here's a little um, fun fact for you, Eric. Um, at the time, Furman versus Georgia was the longest decision ever to grace wow. the United States reports. Didn't know that. I don't think. I I, <laughs> I think some other case has um has uh eclipsed it but and if i remember correctly i might be off but i think it was something like 236 pages wow. um but uh that's the number that's in my head anyway but um every justice all seven uh wrote an opinion wow. in Furman versus georgia wow and one of the things getting to your question is that the five justices in the majority each wrote a concurring opinion there was no plurality opinion. There was no uh, majority opinion. There was a one paragraph per curiam opinion that was, I think, three lines long that just said, you know, for the reasons below, <laughs> these death sentences right. uh, are invalidated. Right. But so the five justices in the majority wrote, it was a 5-4 decision. The five justices in the majority each wrote a separate concurring opinion and no justice in the majority joined another justice's concurring opinion. That's crazy. So you had these five concurring opinions. Um, and by the way, it was quite remarkable because two of those justices were Justice Stewart and White. Right. And they were known as the great dissenters in the Warren Court era. These are no these are no liberals here. Um, uh, and they 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 went ahead and voted with the majority in Furman. In fact, they were a necessary part of the majority. So you had this very splintered decision. Um, part of the reason uh, the, and the backstory of that is that the justices really thought that the death penalty was on its way out anyway. Right. right. Um, and in fact, I think it's Stewart that ends up saying, um, you know, a, a vote the other way would just delay the inevitable. <laughs> And um, so they think it's on the way out. You know, you, you know this as well as I do. You know, the, I, I, I think of the Supreme Court often as um, the leader of the band, um, but sometimes the band turns left and then the, the leader runs and gets in front again. Yeah. Um, that was the court in Furman. And uh, so they strike down the death penalty thinking the country is done with this. By the way, in 1972, when they uh, had done that, 
the country had not had an execution since 1968. Wow. So, I you know, know it either. had no more wow. executions. Death sentences were falling. Um, I hope we'll get a chance to talk about history repeating itself because that's <laughs> happening again. Yes. Um, but but so they strike it down. They think it's dead. And what happens? But the states, uh, uh, you know, 35, 36 states pass statutes revamping their death penalties and bringing the death penalty back. I've got to ask you, Corinna, because this is, and you know, you know my work as well as anybody, so you know what? I sure you, do. You know where this question is coming from. Had the court stayed out of it, do you think it would have ended up differently? Because that's yeah, how I, I feel about abortion, as most people know. Yeah, I do. Wow. Yep, I, had I never, really, really I've never do. heard this before about the death penalty. Wow. Yeah, and in fact, so the, the legal history piece that I did on Furman was a piece on Furman and Gregg, the 1976 right. decision. And um, so I got into the original sources. You've got Time Magazine, Newsweek, saying, you know, the death of the death penalty. You know, everybody's talking about it. Um, one of the uh, uh, one of the news magazines on the backside of the decision says, you know, we 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 issue a collective yawn wow. at the decision. Wow! I because didn't know it that. was so obvious that this is where it's going, um, that it, that it's on its way out anyway. All of these states had abolished, um, and and um, so that's where the court thought it was going, but. Instead, it <laughs> yeah, it inspires a backlash. Yep. One of the greatest backlashes in the history of the Supreme Court, certainly along with Roe. Yeah. Um, but it, it inspires a, I think the biggest legislative backlash wow. in the history of the Supreme Court. Wow. You had you had certain states where the citizens and the legislature demanded to bring the death penalty back in the wake of Furman. And that state had already abolished it. Karina, I have they didn't to, even I, have I have it. to interrupt for one second just because I, I didn't know any of this. So I've already learned more in five minutes. than I. <laughs> um, but, but, but I do want to make a, an editorial comment about this because Reva Siegel at Yale, no relation, who I respect a tremendous amount, and Linda Greenhouse, who has been on this podcast, who I respect a tremendous amount. I disagree with them so much about the backlash about abortion. And, and, and one of the reasons I do I just will take this one minute. They claim it would have happened anyway in the legislatures. And I keep saying to them, no, you don't understand. It was a double whammy. It was, yes, abortion was divisive, more than death penalty, but they didn't want to be told what to do by nine lawyers sitting in Washington. And that's the middle that's of the country. And that's what law professors, this is going to get me in trouble, like Reva, don't understand. That this country is about Ohio and Oklahoma and Missouri and, you know, as much as it's about Boston. And, and the story you're telling me is a story of abortion as well. And I didn't know this story. So anyway, I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it absolutely is. Go ahead. Go ahead. It, I mean, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, so I think this is remarkable. In 1972, Nixon is running, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in 1968, he wins the presidency on a law and order platform, yep. which, by the way, was largely a response to the criminal procedure yes. giants yes. Uh, that I mentioned at the beginning, yes. right? So like you see this intersection and politics playing off in backlash politics to the Supreme Court. Yep. He runs again in 1972. The death penalty is so dead that Richard Nixon, who was law and order, does not campaign. Wow. He is silent. The platform takes no position. The Republican platform does not take a position on the death penalty in 1972. They're quiet. The Democratic platform is in favor of abolishing it. I'm not sure they had a platform on abortion either. I'm not sure about that. I have to go back yeah, and look. I'm not sure. Either. I know it was not a big issue in the 72 campaign. That I do know. Of course, Roe hadn't happened yeah. yet. And that's one of the reasons. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so, so many of these states that were getting there anyway, and, and, and like I said, you know, to have a state say, we want this back, the Supreme Court <laughs> took it from us. Right. And it's like, you didn't have it. You had already abolished it. <laughs> you know, this wasn't oh, about the death penalty. This was here. about not okay. being told what to do. Yeah, I know. Well, see, that's, okay, this is awesome. I'm, I'm having Reva on this and we're going to confront her. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Anyway, so okay, so seven, so so that happens yeah. for four years, and then we get to seventy six, and the court does yeah. what? So so nineteen seventy six, the court takes more cases under tremendous pressure. By the way, not only are have legislatures turned. 
but public opinion has done a 180. Um, and, and contemporary sources at the time, commentators at the time saw it for what it was and said, the Supreme Court brought this back. Wow. You know, the, the, the court's decision in Furman caused the turnaround, caused the U-turn. So they were saying that even at the time. So the court takes these cases in 1976. Everybody knows why the court is taking these cases. It's under tremendous uh, pressure. And yet there's all this research that has come out uh, in the intervening time about how these new guided discretion statutes did not guide discretion one iota, and it was every bit as arbitrary and capricious as it was before. And not only that, Eric, you're gonna love this, but the new statutes are uh, based on the model penal codes uh, guided discretion statute. And the court had said in 1971, right before Furman, that those statutes did nothing to guide discretion. I'm, I actually remember, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the court is already on record saying the statutes don't work. There's research showing the statutes don't work. The court has already stated, hey, you can't have the arbitrary and capricious imposition of death. In 1976, the court says the statutes work. And in fact, um, there's a beautiful footnote in Greg that I always find um, really amusing where the court says some have suggested that the statutes don't work. <laughs> and I read that and go, some, as in four of you. <laughs> so, so Corinna, did, um, I don't, I don't, so it was this a example of a 5-4 case becoming a 5-4 case the other way because of a change in personnel? When did, um, when did Powell, no? No, uh, no and there were shifting majorities. So yeah. there's actually a plurality okay. opinion. Okay. Um, okay. And there's a number of different cases. And okay. so it's not quite that simple. Okay, um, sure, okay. But so, in so any we get event, it back. We get um, it back in '76. You get it back in '76. And then, how did we kill people between '76 and whenever lethal injection started? I have no idea when that was. But when? How did we? How did yeah. we do it in that time period? Yeah. Um, well, uh, we there were basically four different. Uh, four different methods. So you had um, shooting. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the very first execution in our country, which was before we were a country, when we were still <laughs> a colony, it was in Virginia, and it was death by shooting. So like shooting has been around for a really long time. Uh, but generally, it was hanging. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in order to uh, be more humane, it moved to the electrocution, um, the electric chair. Right. And then there was some flirting. I mean, some states had the gas chamber. So you right. had those four. Right. And all of them, all of them produced gruesome, terrible deaths. <sighs> and so, you know, to your point, one thing that's really interesting is when you say like, well, when was lethal injection? Uh, when, when did they adopt that? That was 1977. Wow. The year after the Supreme Court brings the death penalty back in Greg. And um, I'm writing a book on it. So, okay. you know, there's going to be some legal history in awesome. there. But, what you know, what's interesting is that the legislatures around the country said it's 1977 um, we have not had an execution. This country has not seen an execution since 1968. It's been 10 years. And the country is queasy. This is a new death penalty. We just brought it back. I don't know that people, we haven't been executing in 9, 10 years. And I don't know that people are ready to see electrocution, to see more gas chamber. These are terrible deaths. We need to do something right. to uh, make the death penalty to tame it, right. to make it look more acceptable. And they talked about it in those terms. So um, we're going to come back eventually to Virginia and what happened in Virginia. But before we do, I want to yeah. jump. I want to jump jump to history now and and talk about. So our mutual friend Eric Berger, um, who's at Nebraska, who's a great guy. Um, he wrote a piece. Great once. guy. He once wrote a piece about actually administrative law, which you talk, which you have too, but talking yes. about lethal execution. He read my piece, by yeah. the way. Yes, yes. Um, no way I would publish that without his eyes being on right. it. 
I do that with most of my pieces with Eric. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> so what fascinated me about so I, I, you know, everyone knows I'm a big arg, I'm a big proponent of deference from judges to you know others, although not in criminal cases. But leaving that aside, the horror story he told about Kentucky <laughs> and who was actually responsible for lethal injection in Kentucky is of a piece with your piece, which talks about the people who are making these decisions. Present day, let's forget the history for a minute. Today, who is deciding these cocktails today? Yeah, well, um, generally, the people deciding it are lawyers. That's insane. It is so insane. And not only is it insane, but it's lawyers doing Google searches. You're killing me here. I shouldn't use that phrase. Yeah, but you're, and, it's, it's and, and I have to say that's so unbelievable that uh, I just want to say I brought the receipts. Like <laughs> I can, you know, I can show everything. But, but yeah, you know, and and here's the thing: when when Oklahoma adopts the first um, lethal injection statute, yeah, um, it, it goes to the DOC and and but you know, DOC, the, the I'm Department sorry. of Corrections. D DOC is what? The DOC. Uh, Department of Corrections. Yeah, okay, right. And those people, you know, they're experts in prison security. I assume they're great experts in, you know, death row. I'll give them all of that. But they are not pharmacologists. They are not anesthesiologists. They don't know. And so what do they do? Well, they reach out to various medical uh, boards, the state medical board, some other people. Um, nobody wants to play because of medical ethics. And so they find someone to talk to, and it is the uh, Oklahoma uh, Oklahoma's medical examiner, a coroner, <laughs> who says later, who says later, I'm an expert in dead bodies, but not in getting them that way. Oh my God. <sighs> And he makes it up. He makes up the three drug protocol How do we allow off this? the top of his head. How do we allow he, this? He's later interviewed and they say, you know, I think Debbie Denno talks to him and, and um, of, of other people too, but, you know, and he's asked like, wait, wait, you didn't do any research? <laughs> and he said, no. And it was like, well, what, you know, uh, you know, like, why not? And, and, you know, how did you come up with it? And he said, you know, I've just been under surgeries. So I just kind of, you know, made it up. Ugh. And he said, I didn't do any research. Um, the, the Department of Corrections adopts it because they don't know what to do. Right. They don't know what to do. And every other state, um, they, the, the states are now passing these lethal injection statutes. And they, those DOCs, the Departments of Correction, they don't know. So what are they going to do? They're going to follow Oklahoma. Right. So later, this guy, Jay Chapman, who is the coroner, says, I never in my wildest dreams would have believed that it that something I made up off the top of my head would mushroom like this. He said, I guess they just blindly followed it. That is the origin story of lethal injection. Well, you know, some other things happen there too. Um, they get this Holocaust denier, um, th this guy, Fred Lecher, um, who, you know, tells the, the Departments of Correction that he has an engineering degree and he's gonna build them a lethal injection machine. He doesn't have an engineering degree. Jesus. He's later charged with fraud. He has a history degree. So, so the and he's a Holocaust right. denier. So, so one of the points. And, go, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say. So like, they run through that. That comes out. That's a big scandal. And then it's like, who are you going to get? And you know, they don't have someone advising them. They did have this guy, uh, Mark Dershowitz, and um, he, uh, the uh, American Board of Anesthesiologists, find out that he's advising. And he issues a public statement and says, I will no longer be saying anything about lethal injection to right. anyone because anesthesiologists, and they're the people that would really know, right, how to do a painless death. You think? Um, the ABA, the American Board of, of Anesthesiology, has said they've issued a statement and said, if you advise or participate in any way, including advice, we will take away your board certification. Right. Right. Can I have a couple of questions about this whole <laughs> this whole sorted thing? Um, 
I'll try to limit it. To but two. that's how we get to lawyers. Yes. Well, well that's how we but, get to lawyers. But two questions. Yep. Um, one, I mean, in modern time, relatively modern times, the Supreme Court has looked at this and looked mm-hmm. the other way, is my understanding, which is oh, yeah. which is insane to me. Eric Berger's point was this is not a situation where the court is deferring to legislatures or governors or Congress. They're deferring to prison guards, basically, who know nothing about the lethal injection they're given. How did that happen? That's one question. Question two. I've never understood this. I'm, I'm actually asked this all the time by people. And I say, sorry, not my area. Ask Professor Lane or somebody. But so I'm, so I'm going to ask you. Why can't we just give them enough morphine to kill them? I mean, I, don't, I mean I've, I've, I've known some elderly people, you know, who, who were at death's door, and they were in a lot of pain. And the answer was, we'll give you enough morphine to cure the pain, which we also know will probably kill you. But that's what you want. The Supreme Court has even blessed that, kind of, in, in dicta. Why can't we just give them morphine and let them sleep? Mm-hmm. Is that a crazy question? No, it's not a crazy question. Um, if you want me to take that one first, sure. I'll just say... Sure. I had a similar question. I set out to write a law review article on it. The law review article was called, Why Can't We Get Lethal Injection Right? Yeah. And the whole thing was like, wait, we put down cats and dogs by the thousands. Right. Every day. Right. Right. We put people under and then we cut their chest open. We do all (laughs) of these painful things. Why can't we get this right? Um, My little article became a book. I'm okay. in chapter 12. It's a very big book. <laughs> yeah. This is a very complicated question. It's a big topic. But, you know, it, it, it comes at the intersection of um, drugs, the availability of drugs, um, what drugs they can get. Because these are all controlled substances. And you don't have a prescription. No, but states can use it. I mean, states can use it. They don't need a prescription, do they? Uh, well, uh, I think they so the very first, the earliest cases, you actually had Texas falsifying, Jeez. the Texas Department of uh, Corrections falsifying uh, a prescription, saying it was for an inmate at a location that no longer existed. <laughs> and um, the pharmacy found out and just refused to fill the script. Um, but uh, you're, you know, whether it's a compounding pharmacy, I mean, these are all controlled substances. You're supposed to have a prescription. Um, clearly, they don't. And then you've got the drug manufacturers. And so one thing to recognize, you know, there's all this stuff about, oh, it's the abolitionists. You know, it's it's all their fault. They've, you know, they've, uh, this is the guerrilla warfare you heard about. Meaning you. And I would you're say an two abolitionist. things about that. I mean, you're an abolitionist. They're blaming you. <laughs> Well, you know, two things I would say. Number one, to the extent it's the fault of the abolitionists, um, those abolitionists have names. Right. (laughs) And the names are Great Britain, Germany, Italy, and the sovereign (laughs) nations of the European Union, who have been fiercely abolitionist for decades. And, you know, it was actually an accident uh, that they came to put these export controls. But that, you know, uh, what happened was one of the, uh, Hospira, this this major uh, pharmaceutical company, had an aging plant in North Carolina, relocated the plant in Italy. And the Italian authority said, okay, well, you're not gonna, right. you know, we're not gonna license your plant um, if you're supplying to uh, executioners. We're fiercely, anti-death penalty and uh Hospira decided yeah I'm just gonna stop making it because it's not worth it and that just sort of started this oh wait the major pharmaceutical companies they're in Europe we can put export controls right you know and you and, and so you see all of this discourse about like the abolitionists and I'm thinking we do that all the time Right? right? Like we right. say, we're not going to sell to you because we don't like what you do with those products or we just don't like what you're doing generally. Right. Um, well, guess what? We're on the receiving end of that because of the death penalty. Right. And then even for domestic suppliers who you could say, well, okay, that's a lot of the major, you know, big pharma is over in Europe, but not everyone. There's some big pharma in the United States. Um, you know, their mottos literally um, one of them is um, drugs for life. Right. 
right? One of them is, um, you know, helping patients live longer. I, I mean, like these, you know, this is like a scene out of the onion, you right, know, right. that like they do not want their drugs being used for executions. And recently they've sued. So let, let me be to stop that from happening. I'm so that's not abolitionist. That's right. like the drug companies don't want this. I'm so anyway, it's complicated, but I'm confused about one those thing. Those two pieces are important. I, I'm confused about one thing about that story. Um, yeah. And, and, and we like each other so much that we're laughing, but this is a dead serious topic. I don't mean to be making light of this in any way, and neither do you, obviously. Sure. I'm confused. So um, Georgia has a death penalty, um, I think. Yep. Uh, I think they use lethal injection. I'm not sure about that. Um, they do. I don't understand. What doctor is involved in the creation of that lethal injection, if any? Okay. So so there's there's two points where one would want a doctor involved to have a reasonably, no, minimally competent lethal injection. Right. One is coming up with the drugs. Yes. <laughs> so this is where, and I mean, this was Oklahoma's story literally the lawyers and it's not just oklahoma there's other states too no kentucky eric they document i kentucky also but you know they get they're getting online why because they don't have doctors that are willing to play okay so one is advising them on just like the right drugs right the other point in time is who's going to actually administer this because you're talking about catheterizing the vein and by the way death row inmates, they tend to have really bad veins right, right. by drug, you know, chronic sure. drug use, sure. health problems. They really do have bad veins. Um, so, you know, you've, you've got that piece of it. And what they're doing is they are injecting them with this huge overdose. So when I started looking at lethal injection, I thought, okay, three drug protocol, it's probably three syringes, like, one, two, three, how hard can it be? No, it's like 12 to 15 syringes. Oh my. Because they're doing this massive overdose um, and they are paralyzing them um, so that it looks like a peaceful death, but a bunch of autopsies. And I mean, 80% of the autopsies with um, midazolam, which is the most recent drug, are showing that these people are dying from slow suffocation, okay. from I, pulmonary edema. I, I hate to do this, but since I've read, I did read a couple of the cases on this. Take yeah. us, take us through. This is painful. So, but but take us through. The drug is supposed to paralyze you, put you to sleep, kill you, right? Uh, no. Well, no. Uh, so you've got uh, in the three drug protocol. Yeah. The first drug is supposed to render you insensate so that you cannot feel. Does it do that? No, I didn't it think doesn't. So. But yeah. but I think the original three drug protocol, sodium theopental would have, pentobarbital would have. Right. Um, they can't get those drugs. So now they've turned to midazolam, which is in the benzodiazepine family. And those are just, that's Valium. I was going to say, isn't that just really that's strong Xanax. Valium? Isn't that really strong Valium? Yes, yes. What do they call it? Uh, a martini in oh my a God. pill? Okay, so it's basically so, so, what they got. So, but like, it's a relaxant. And it can, don't, don't get me wrong, um, it can put you out. It can knock you unconscious. The problem is... It doesn't render you unconscious at a level where you uh, where you would reach a surgical plane of anesthesia, right. um, where somebody could you know could cut you open and you just wouldn't right. even know. Right. Noxious stimuli will wake you up, and that's what we see with the botched executions. Noxious noxious stimuli will wake you up. So that's the first drug. What's the noxious stimuli? It's the second and third drugs. So the second drug is the paralytic. Right. Um, and pancuronium bromide. And it, you know, the idea is that it's just, um, <laughs> I mean, the Supreme Court has said that the uh, state has an interest in a dignified death. Yeah. But that dignified death, you know, that's, um, that is to the benefit of the state. It's certainly not yeah. to the benefit of the inmate. And in fact, it is, it does two things. Number one, if the first drug doesn't work, which we know pharmacologically, midazolam does not work, right. there is no 
question about this. This is a scientific consensus. Right. Um, but if it doesn't work, no one will know because you're paralyzed. But the second point is, um, as it paralyzes you, it paralyzes you from the outside in. So the last thing, so first, you know, you start looking, it's, a, it's also a muscle relaxant. So you look nice and peaceful, oh, joy. right? You don't paralyze, you know, right. like that, like you're paralyzed with a very peaceful look. Um, but the last thing is the diaphragm. And so as it slowly freezes, your breathing becomes more and more labored. You have to work harder to actually catch your breath. And so in these autopsies, they're seeing bulging veins where on the inside, you know, these, these inmates, they are definitely awake and they are definitely suffering from air hunger. They're trying to catch their breath. Like drowning. And if you think about it, like drowning. this is happening over 15, 20 minutes in the locket execution. It was 45 yeah. minutes. That is slow suffocation while being paralyzed. So the, the anesthesiologists that are testifying are saying, look, this is like being buried alive. Like you can't even scream out in pain. You can't move. You're scaring me here. But you, okay. <laughs> all of this is happening. Wow. Um, and then the third drug is the one that's supposed to bring a quick death. Um, that one is known as liquid fire um, because it chemically burns the veins as it races to your heart and causes a cardiac arrest. So like these are terribly painful drugs. Okay, so um, so so let's so all right. Yeah. So that's that was depressing. Um, so on and, that note, yeah, yeah that was depressing. So there was, there a, was a prior question you had that's asked. That's right. I want to move I on. I want to move on to something because I'm sure okay. people. There are some people listening to this, and maybe a lot of people even, if assuming a lot of people listen to this, which is a big assumption. Um, that all right, but these are terrible, heinous, you know, awful human beings, and even if we don't want them tortured. Mm -hmm. A little bit of suffering at the end isn't bad, given all the to get the death penalty, the terrible things they've done. And you wrote a piece. I, I just this piece almost made me cry. Um, uh, called I don't know if it's the title, but the worst of the worst. And your point is, oh. we are not killing the worst of the worst. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, so if you look nationwide, and and that particular little essay was um, looking at Virginia as Virginia repealed its death penalty, and we were saying goodbye to it. It was like who was you know who who was Virginia actually executing? And so in that little piece, I looked at who Virginia was executing and said this is the same thing that's happening nationwide. So who are we executing? Number one, who we're executing are people with serious mental illness. And, and by that, I mean, uh, that's not just a, um, a colloquial uh, uh, description, that's serious mental illness, SMI, in the latest DSM-5 manual, okay? Right. It's a diagnosable serious mental illness. And these people are diagnosed. Um, so for example, you know, the very last person to be executed in Virginia was a guy named William Morva. And he was uh, actively psychotic. He thought, and, and I mean, this was true even at trial. This was true even as he committed the offense. So this isn't necessarily something, I'm sure it got worse when he was on death row because all mental health and mental illness um, like it's very bad for you to, to be in solitary confinement. Yes. So like anything they come in with, it gets worse. But, you know, even at the time of the offense, he thought he suffered from um, this rare intestinal illness that required him to eat large amounts of raw meat and pine cones. Um, pine he cones? thought he, his real name was Nemo. Wait, wait, that pine he was cones? Sent to he, like, ate, he, ate, he ate pine cones? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, he was actively psychotic. You know, and and it's like, is that is that person the worst of the worst? Right. And well, the death penalty, the Supreme Court has said it's not for any murderer. Right. It's for the worst of the worst murderers. Right. But it's not. Um, it turns out it's not, though. No, yeah. it's not. You know, and and I think other uh, categories it's for and Steve Bright wrote the landmark, you know, piece on this, right. but it's for the worst lawyer death penalty, not for the worst crime, but for the worst lawyer. So we see that it's for um, people who have the bad luck of being in the wrong jurisdiction where you have a Commonwealth attorney or a state's attorney that wants to go whole hog on death. Right. Um, and, and there are, 
you know, the deadliest um, uh, counties in the country, you know, our death penalty is a 2% death penalty. Yeah. 2% right. of the jurisdictions really account for our death penalty, right? You think it's, well, it's states, but it's right. really jurisdictions. Um, and then, of course, uh, those who commit black on white crime. Right. Well, so on that I mean, point, on that point, I've never told you this, but I was a law clerk uh, in Northern District of Georgia from 83 to 85. And Judge, I'm having a senior moment on his name, who had the district court case in McCleskey versus... Oh, Kemp. Yeah, so... McCleskey versus Kemp. Yeah, their oh, law wow. Clerk, his law clerks came, I was friends with them, and they came to my... Off, I was going to say my chambers, Freudian slip, my little office outside the judge's chambers one day. Uh, I forget, I think it was towards the end of my clerkship, and they were in tears, both of them. And both, by the way, were reasonably conservative. They were in tears mm. because the data was so overwhelming. And they, oh, yeah. they knew two things. They knew that the data about who gets the death penalty for what was so racist, and they knew they were never going to win the Supreme Court. And it was a mm. devastating afternoon. I'll never. Why don't you tell everybody about that case and what happened? Because it's 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 a biggie, right? I mean, it's. Yeah. Well, um, in McCleskey versus Kemp, they had just a ton of data. They had the very famous study called the Baldus right. study. Right. And it was David Baldus and some some associates. They collected data and they. Um, they actually managed to account for over 230 non-racial, very like they took out everything right. and said, when you take everything away, strip every other possible reason away, um, all you're left with is race. Yep. And a black defendant who kills a white victim is over four times as likely to get the death penalty. And there was right. just, there was no other explanation That's for what they it, said. You know? I, that's what they said. I, I never forget it. They were so sure. Yeah. By the Supreme Court. Yeah. And, and so one, one sort of, um, you know, I mean, I, I hate to say fun fact because there's really nothing right. fun right. Um, about this topic. But right. one of the interesting things is Powell writes the opinion. Uh, it's a 5-4 um, decision. And, you know, in dissent, the dissent in that decision says, look, in Furman versus Georgia in 1972, you said it couldn't be arbitrary and capricious. You said this is Furman but with proof. You know, quick, quick aside. And, and, yeah, quick, quick. But, quick well, yeah, one, yeah. one other thing I'll just yeah. say is that Powell, after he retires, his biographer says, do you have any regrets? I know. You know it. Do I, you want to finish it? Well, I, I, my understanding is he said Bowers versus Hardwick. Ah, no. Well, he might have said that too, but in, in, in this biography, yeah. he said McCleskey versus okay. Kemp. He had a lot he of regrets regretted for a guy. His, his vote. He had a lot of regrets for a guy who voted the wrong way a lot of the time. What I wanted to say about Powell was true because Virginia, you've spent most of your career in Virginia, and um, um, you know what Justice Powell might be even more famous for than his his opinion. I mean, his his statement that Bowers was really bad, and I wish I hadn't done it. Um, yeah. And, and McCleskey is he brought commercial speech and corporate. And, and, and protection for corporations to the Supreme Court in the early yeah. 1970s in a way that has done unconscionable harm, in my opinion, to, and eventually that decisions united in all those cases. Um, so yep. he was a very nice man, apparently, and a Southern gentleman, but boy, did he do a lot of harm. I mean, did he do a lot of harm. Anyway, going back to, to McCluskey, what was the majority's rationale? I don't even know. What, how, why did they deny this? These statistics were so clear. Uh, you know, in that particular case, um, so we, what they basically said was, um, well, they said a couple things. W one of the things they said was, you, you've shown this disproportionate impact. Right. That's not enough. Intent. You got to show You intent. have to show. Yeah, you have to show in your case, which it's like, what does that look like? <laughs> I think I'm going to charge you because you're black. Okay, good luck finding that sort of evidence. But that's, yeah. you know, that's what the court said. Um, and, and one of the things that the dissent said was, um, oh, um, the, the sort of evidence that will save your job is not enough to save your life. Oh, my goodness. Right. And, and, um, and it was true. It was true. And I forgot um, one thing I meant to ask you about lethal injection. Yeah. In, in the article that you wrote, and then we're going to, and by the way, for those listening, we are going to move to some better news in a minute, because this has been very depressing. <laughs> All right. But I think I, I read in your piece that 
the way we put down dogs and cats is way more humane than the way we put down people. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. What kind of society does that? <laughs> um, you know, and the Supreme Court, like that argument has been before the Supreme Court. That was um, in, in Bayes. So Bayes versus right. Rees, which was the first lethal injection right. case. So um, the states, uh, almost all of them actually regulate how this is state legislatures. So statutes on the books actually regulate how um, veterinarians can put down dogs and cats. Um, what do they call that? Uh, uh, well, some they say it's not uh, domestic animals. Sometimes they'll say that, but they'll say, um, uh, I don't know what they say. Something about like, it, basically like non um, Wild uh, cattle, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. anything else yeah. that's, that's not yeah. cattle. In any event, um, so, you know, they, they, these statutes actually regulated and everywhere that it's regulated, you cannot use a paralytic in a death of a cat or, or dog. And that's because you're both doing something painful to them. Okay. So it's, they are dying by slow suffocation and you are hiding pain. So you can't monitor it. You can't do something. They won't cry out in pain. And, um, you know, that argument was before the Supreme Court and um, actually one of the justices who concurred. So I'm like, well, you know, you went along with the decision. Right. But one of the justices said um, that it was unseemly that Kentucky was executing prisoners in a manner that it would not allow on the prisoner's pets, That's just, on their pets. So, so I, you know, we um, I'll try to tell the story without getting emotional, but we, we have a six. We had a 16 year old lab who we loved. My wife, Lynn, loved this lab so much and we had to put her down. Is that McSweeney? Uh, no, no. This is the, okay. the pre Sweeney dog. This is this is Daisy. Okay. Sweeney. But real quick, they came to our house to do it because Lynn wanted it to be done. And it seemed like the most peaceful thing I've ever seen. And I'm, mm -hmm. I can't, I don't know what's inside poor Daisy's head, but I'm pretty sure she didn't suffer. And I, yeah. and I just can't imagine how we live in a country where we make human, I understand the dog did nothing wrong and the prisoner did, but, but, that, is, but that isn't the point. The point is we have a way of doing this without pain. I, all right, let's, we, we don't yeah. have that much time left. So I wanna get to the good news. So talk okay. to us about Virginia, the first state to use the death penalty, the state where there's been more, I think, executions than any state in the country, including Texas, which I learned from reading your work, which I couldn't believe, but okay. And Well, Virginia had a 400-year head start. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Still, know. it's Texas. So there's that. Still, it is Texas. Um, what happened yeah. in Virginia, and, 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 how, and how, how did they get rid of the death penalty? Yeah, well, you know, I have to say it was... Uh, the you know the the story is much larger than the one you know that that I'm telling in this right. particular piece. Sure. The piece focuses on the impact of having regional capital defenders. But you know, um, I, I mean, before there were regional capital defenders, there were very very good uh, appointed defenders. There was um, you know. Uh, various groups doing various work. And then there was a lot of abolitionist groups. So like, I wanna say, and it's really important to understand this, that it takes a village and there was no one, I, I don't even think there was one tipping point. I really don't. Um, you could have had all of this going. And if you didn't have um, a blue legislature and right. a democratic governor, right. that wasn't gonna happen. So, right. you know, and in fact, you know, Trump and his, and, and his zeal for executions, even as a lame duck uh, president, like that contributed to backlash. Like there was all kinds of things in there, but one of the stories, you know, one piece of that is the role of having regional capital defenders. And the fact of the matter is that um, in 2021, uh, when, so Virginia just repealed this right. past spring, but in 2021, we had not had a new death sentence in 10 years. Right. We've not had a new one. The death penalty was dying on the vine. It was already gone. And we only had two people on death row. Right. Um, right. And we only had two people in death row in part because Virginia was 
really, really good at executing people. Virginia's, uh, so Virginia had, in my mind, the skimpiest, uh, most indefensible appellate review of death sentences in the entire country, wow. which gave it the ability to turn death sentences into executions at five times the national average. Wow. I mean, Virginia's like way off. Um, and it had the fastest death penalty and it had the broadest death penalty statute. And that's not just me saying that, like that was a Columbia study that said, oh, Virginia has the broadest death penalty statute in the country. So, you know, when you think about it, um, a lot of the press for Virginia has been on, oh, it's the first Southern state to abolish. And, uh, you know, fair enough. And yes, although, you know, Virginia has gone from reliably red to purple to blue. And it's not so much acting like a traditional right. Southern state. Um, and so, yes, it is the first. And I don't want to take away from that. But, but um, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of other things going on. What I think is more remarkable than the fact that Virginia was the first Southern state is the fact that this was the strongest, most lethal death penalty in the country. Right. Um, now, how you know, how the, the regional, the, the role that the regional defenders played in that um, is, is I mean, it takes me 92 pages okay, so <laughs> to okay, tell okay. that story. So, it's really long, but I'll just say um, it came with independence. Uh, they weren't court appointed, so they could be a real pain in the butt. They didn't right. care about the judge's uh, calendars right. um, because they didn't have to look to see if they were going to get appointed on the next case. Right. right? right. Um, it brought resources in-house, so they weren't asking the judge for somebody to be appointed. They weren't asking for more hours, asking for more money. They had all that in-house. Um, it allowed for efficiencies. It connected them uh into an into uh, a national organization where they pick you know they went to national trainings um picked up you know tactics brought it back to virginia so there were all kinds of right. things um that happened when that happened um but again it's it's one piece of a larger story so i'm gonna um i have one last question for you that you can refuse to answer if you want um the background is this. From what I've learned from you today and from reading your work, which I love, um, is one, the death penalty, which I already knew, is, is, is racially biased in all kinds of ways. Two, the way we kill people Facts. is horrific and almost certainly cruel and unusual punishment, if there is such a thing. Clearly. Um, three, we don't even execute the worst of the worst. We execute people who are mentally ill and who really should probably be seeing, getting help in a confined place, we would agree, but getting, getting yep. help. With all three of those things, I think it is extraordinarily clear, it should be clear to almost any sensible person, this country needs to stop using the death penalty. But here's my question for you. And just to give people listening some background, you have a, you were in the military. Um, was. I, I know what your politics are. Describing you as like a knee-jerk, bleeding-heart liberal would be completely unfair. That's not who you are. Um, uh, first of all, because you're much more thoughtful than that. But that's just, you know, you're not... You're not, you know, a Massachusetts bleeding heart liberal like I am. You know, that's not who you are. Um, if we could do it in a way that was not racially biased, that wasn't cruel and unusual, and we did execute the worst of the worst instead of not executing the worst of the worst, would you still be against the death penalty both personally and professionally? Uh, and you can, you, know, you can take the fifth um, if you want. Yeah, no, it's okay. So... Um, I wrote a piece several years ago where I really came out with my own um, views. It was a very mm -hmm. personal piece, and so yeah. I, I can share that here. Yeah. Although I will say that doesn't generally animate any of my work. I have people all the time saying, like, so are you for it or against it? Like, right. because right. You're, right. You're, 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 you know, it's not really advocacy work. And um, I, I have to say on a personal level, I would oppose the death penalty, but for reasons that I actually don't believe um, belong in the public discourse, it's a matter of faith. Right. Um, and I am a staunch supporter of the separation of church and state. And right. so, you know, I, I look and say, um, uh, if, the, if the reason uh, comes down to you need to believe like I do, well then that, you know, that's not something um, that, right 
that I think our policies in a pluralistic society right. should be based on. Hello, right. abortion also. But right. anyway, yes. Um, yes. Uh, but um, but here's the thing, you know, the question that I often ask is saying that that someone deserves the death penalty is one side of the equation. And you can look at some of the, I mean, I wanna own that, right? right. Like I wanna acknowledge that some of these are horrific murders. And to look at someone and say, which, you know, I, I don't think many of them do, but you know, to look at someone and say, okay, but you, you deserve the death penalty. That's one half of the equation. And the public tends to stop there, but there's a second half of the equation that in my mind is always determinative and it is okay you might deserve the death penalty state have you done what you deserve what you need to do right to deserve to take that life right and the answer is universally no and it will never be yes right because among those things is competent counsel that we pay for and we still don't do that and where we do hello virginia right where we get good counsel in there consistently we had good counsel before but like where you where you bring this stuff in the death penalty goes away the death penalty melts away right because they're able to tell the juries really this guy is this guy the worst of the worst look we're not talking about letting him out not right. ever right right they're right. not safe right but is this guy the worst of the worst is that guy is that guy is that guy right. and when you can make that argument the fact is there just aren't enough people left that really are the worst of the worst yeah. to sustain an entire Apparatus. death penalty structure. Yeah. All right. That doesn't exist. That's a, that's a hey, great you answer. know, uh, I, I know we're going to run out of time. Yeah. So one thing I, I wanted to kind of um, by way of uh, uh, a note of good cheer. Okay is to give you a little bit uh, a sense of what's happening with the death penalty go. nationwide. Go. Can I do that? Yes, go. And then I want to and okay. then I'm going to end this by embarrassing you so I'm warning you in advance. Go ahead. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um in 1999 and I, and I, I I went 1999, 2009 and 2019. I didn't want to use 2020 stats cuz COVID and I I, I think yeah, they're skewed. Sure, sure. Um, but they're low. Yeah. 20 1999, 279 death sentences. 2009, 118. Wow. 2019. So 10-year increments. 34 nationwide. Well, that does nationwide. Make me, that does make me feel much better, Corinna. <laughs> um executions. 1999, there were 98 executions. 2009, 10 years later, 52 executions. I mean, this is dropping dramatically. 2019, 22. Wow. And eight states have abolished the death penalty legislatively on their own in the last 10 years. So lesson is Supreme Court stay away? <laughs> That, I mean. So, you know, I think part of those, I look at those lethal injection decisions, honestly, right. and right. I look at the court as a very frustrated court. They like democracy. They like saying, oh, let's not get involved, except when it doesn't go their way. Of course. Of course. And they, this, this is a, you, you look at those decisions and you're like, yep. Yep. You can tell their posture. It's almost like their body posture. Yep. They're on the defensive because yep. they know this death penalty, it's dying. Excellent. Well, that's we're going to leave the death penalty right there because and hopefully <laughs> five years. I do want to say something to those listening. Um, you need to read Professor Lane's work and not just on the death penalty. I, I, shortly after we oh. met, short, no, wait a minute, shortly after we met, you completed an article, I don't know if it was Stanford or California, I forget which law review it was, um, I think it was one of those two, about uh, the, the school prayer cases, we're changing subjects. Yeah, Stanford. Stanford. This is Stanford this, this, um, and, and, you're, and you told me what the thesis was, and I was like, nah, no chance. And what you told me was, the most controversial cases ever decided by the United States Supreme Court, including abortion, Brown, everything else are not Roe and Brown or anything else like that, but were the 1962 and 63 cases where the Supreme Court held prayer in school were unconstitutional. You told me that, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'll go read that piece. I'm not going to believe it. I barely knew you then. And then I went to read it, and I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> not only is she right, but the best thing about this scholarship is that, it sh is that 
she's Corinna is saying something that no one else has ever said, or almost no one else has ever said. And to do that in our field is unbelievably mm-hmm. hard and difficult. And I, um, I liked you before that, but after that, um, I really understood how special you were. So um, I want people. You're to... such a good friend. So you all need to know the Admiration Society goes right well, okay. back. Well, and I know it's not it's, supposed it's to be my podcast, like this, so you but... don't get to say any of that. Um, anyway, thank I you, don't... thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I want people to read your work. You actually make thank a difference you. in these areas, like death penalty and stuff. Um, and uh, it's really important. And I wish we had three hours to talk, but I suspect. Others might not wish that. So um, this this went by in five minutes. I know. And it's Thank been, you so much for having me on. I, I loved it. And, really, and, a and I think it's close to sixty, and it felt like five. You're right. Uh, so, <laughs> thanks, Karina. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.